0: Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Back again. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. And today we're going on a journey. Long, long ago, in a simpler time, before antibiotics, it was fucking known that the devil, bad humors, evil blood, was the cause of disease. And the obvious solution was to cut their arm cut the arm of the sick person and bleed them until they either died but it was god's will or they survived thus proving how effective medicine was and this was set for years for decades for generations for centuries for the next longest measure of time until a heretic an evil godless man came along alexander fleming and antibiotics returning from holiday which just by hearing that you know this this fella's british no one talks like that bro you just say coming back from vacation but regardless on september 3rd 1928 fleming began to sort through petri dishes containing colonies of staphylococcus bacteria now no one asked why the hell this guy had a bunch of fucking jars of, of nasty bacteria. But hey, if it wasn't for him, we'd all be dead. So praise Alexander Fleming. And uh, Staphylococcus, I actually know what that is. Back in the day, back in my wrestling days, um, I got to be a, a bit of a professional skin disease identifier. You know, I was that kid that always had a ringworm. I one time got impetigo in my armpit and it you know, it looked like poison ivy mixed with honey and stinging nettle in my armpit. And I'd always go up to people and be like, hey man, look at this. I'm like, what the fuck is your problem? And then I had to go to the doctor. Um, but staff is, it's kind of like a pimple that gets out of control and then gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then fills with poison and then turns into this deep crater in your body and you die. So for some reason, Alexander Fleming was studying that, but he noticed something unusual on one of his dishes. It was, you know, dotted with colonies of staff, but there was one area where a blob of mold was growing. And the zone immediately around the mold, later identified as a rare strain of Penicillium notatum, was clear, as if the mold had secreted something that inhibited bacterial growth. Fleming found that his mold juice was capable of killing a wide range of of harmful bacteria and then some time passed and i don't fucking know and dates aren't important but some other guys from oxford they helped too they tried to take penicillin from this laboratory curiosity into a life-saving drug uh they got a team of penicillin girls uh employed at two pounds so those were like british dollars uh, two pounds a week to inoculate and generally look after fermentation brewing this forbidden mold juice the girls made the juice in bathtubs in showers containers wherever the girls wanted to do it they made the juice and they hoped to put this juice inside inside of human beings hoping it could work On human bacterial infections. These godless men and their penicillin girls were interfering with the Lord's plan. They didn't get too much support until one day there was this policeman who had this tiny little face infection that got extremely fucked up and he was gonna die. He had a lung infection too, and everyone was like, Well, he can't really get any worse. Girls, give him the juice. And he got better. But they are kind of stupid and the world's shittiest doctors. So you know they fucked it up, and he still did die afterwards. But those girls and their juice changed the world and how everyone thought about disease. What if there was something else like that? What if there's a myth so insanely common that it is even questioned, as accepted? as, oh, don't worry, little buddy, just bleed him. He'll get the bad humors out and he'll get better. What if? And that, my friends, is exactly what happened. Our hero, Michael J. Howe, stumbled upon a myth so widespread that even calling it a myth, the peasants of the world get their pitchforks ready to burn you at the stake like the witch you are. The myth that genius exists. Now, our author, the great Michael Howe, rest in peace, was born in 1940. He's British, but it's okay, we forgive him. And he spent years in Britain, which I think is the same as England, drinking tea and being a psychology professor at some university, not in America. He died in 2002 following a stroke, rest in peace, and was at the center of a maelstrom of debate. Because like everybody, he initially thought that obviously geniuses were a thing you know there's this easy computer analogy that well chap well uh, some some people are just born with bigger computers in their mind and he set out to study geniuses you know mostly to study these mythical creatures much like the u.s government studies vampires but as he dug deeper he couldn't get over the fact that he wasn't finding the patterns he thought he was going to he thought that You know, much like vampires have specific traits. They all wear suits, they drink blood, they hate the sun. He thought that all geniuses would follow the model. And you know, that model is, well, from the first moment he was born, he was special. Man, the first song he ever heard, he knew it by heart. You know, he never practiced music, but it just came to him. He's always been a genius. But what? mr. Howe, what he found was confusing he found no correlation he found these geniuses because like totally uh you know we're not we're not disputing the fact that there's people that are incredibly fucking good almost magically good at certain things but these geniuses they came from all over and have all had all different types of stories some were super smart from the beginning some couldn't fucking read until they were grown and then some were average until all of a sudden they weren't. So like that shadow that you look at and you're sure it's nothing and, until it moves its head and then you realize it's a fucking demon. Up oh, What? The only thing he fucking found that they had in common was a shitload of practice and giant balls. So he set out to figure this out, to explain how you could have people like Elon Musk and then also... That guy who tried to rob the liquor store by throwing a rock through the window but it bounced back and hit him in the face and he knocked himself out and his friend left him for dead. They can't be the same species. They can't have the same mental hardware, right? Because that would make Elon Musk even more inspiring and that that brick-headed criminal even worse. That's what he found. And as all good books, I'm going to paint his viewpoint and then we'll dissect some of this because, you know, to write a book like this, you've got to take a pretty extreme view. Um, and it's probably not a hundred percent like how he lays it out. You know, it's like those people that, that say that the, the key to gaining muscle is going to failure. So everything they say is like, take it to failure, brother. Even though it's like, yeah, yeah, it's nuanced, man. Like a couple reps away from failures. It's pretty good too. Um, but even if this is 85% correct, this really fucking changes a lot about how the average person bumbles their way through this insanity we call life because michael howe mr howe rest in peace controversially suggests that genius is not a mysterious and mythical gift but the product of a combination of environment personality and goddamn american hard work so get ready people have been burned at the stake for less we're about to make toilet on decades of dogma. Cast off your preconceived notions of what you believe, and open your mind to this sorcery. Much like long ago, I remember when I was a, I was a black belt at Taekwondo. I was maybe thirteen, and my friend picked me up in a double leg takedown, and and carried me around like I was some captured wench from Viking days of old. And he said, "What would your What would your cool strikes? What would your punches and kicks? What would they do if I did that?" And I wanted to have a witty retort, but I knew the answer was nothing. Nothing in my experience at that time had been able to stop him from carrying me around. And it was only through his benevolence that he left me with my virtue. So what did I do? I changed my worldview. I joined wrestling and I resolved to never let another man pick me up again. I put forth, that's what we all need to do right now. So let's listen up to Michael, Mr. Howe, and see if we might just be able to learn something from this modern-day witch. Rest in peace. Mr. Howe rolls in, I learned about geniuses at school. They were, I discovered, a race of godlike individuals quite unlike ordinary people, possessing marvelous and practically boundless capabilities that the common run of men and women could never dream of but after he started studying more and more he realized there's a lot of gray here there's maybe even 50 shades of gray one could say what is the line between genius and not what about near geniuses what about those people uh, that are genius in one aspect but horrible in, in another you know they're really really good at math but you know you, you, they try to tell a joke and everybody just like throws up and kills them What about that? And he says, despite these difficulties of these 50 shades of gray, many people are reluctant to relinquish the belief in geniuses as a kind of super breed. Stripped of their aura of apartness, geniuses might cease to be the exotic figures whose wondrous feats dazzle and astonish us, adding to the quality of our own lives. But he says there's no need for these fears. Having spent some time exploring the early lives of a number of geniuses, I find that neither my admiration for them nor my astonishment at their creativity has diminished at all. The fact that they spring from the same flesh and blood as everyone else makes geniuses all the more impressive, not less. So in my summary, he's basically saying he's going to take us on a journey. It's going to be crazy. But we don't have to be concerned when the illusions that we build our world with fall around us and those monsters from the forest turn out to just be wolves because never fear wolves are fucking awesome he says of course my view that geniuses began their lives made from much the same basic materials as all the rest of us is one that not every reader will be easily persuaded to share now this is true i can confirm i have almost gotten to a fist fight with my good friend multiple friends i was gonna fight them all about this concept you know think about some drunken former DePaw nerds. That's that's my friend group, myself included. We're you know we're talking about real smart person stuff, like you know, how does genius arise? You know, other people are like, "Where'd well, you catch the game? You see the football?" And We're like, "How does geniuses arise?" And um, you know, I've been in the minority with six, and that's that's a totally made up number, but kind of true. Six different people that are all shouting me out of the room, just. You know throwing counterexample after counter example which were all wrong by the way in my opinion on why this cannot be why geniuses have to be these these mythical creatures but as goddamn mr howe so nicely puts it yet although those who hold that view do not question its truth they can rarely produce positive evidence in support of it that's right that's right in reality however The truth of a theory is never confirmed by someone's inability to think of alternatives. My failure to provide a better explanation for the presents that appear on Christmas Day is not a sufficient reason for anyone sharing my belief that Father Christmas brought them down the chimney. With geniuses, the idea of their being born with special gifts is a plausible possibility, but, as we shall see, there are alternative explanations that are more convincing holy shit mr Howe's coming out strong i mean anytime that you can write a formal like book like this psychology and stuff and and you can compare your detractors to children who believe in santa claus coming out strong shit's about to get real them's fighting words brother into the introduction genius appears to be a mystery immune to scientific analysis unlike the mundane kind of expertise that ordinary men and women gain through training and practice Genius is seen as a quality that is bestowed from above on particular individuals who are chosen to receive it. For the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant, genius was an incommunicable gift that cannot be taught or handed on, but is mysteriously imparted to certain artists by nature and dies with the person. That view is still widely shared today. Confronted with the challenge of explaining the purity and perfection of Mozart's music, the editor of a book on genius insists that the task is impossible, adding that we can only answer, because he was a genius, which is tantamount for saying that we do not know. For in each age and in each art, genius is that which defies analysis. So if you've heard the song Immortal by Lorna Shore, but it's just, it's just It's beautiful. And for each age, for each art, how, that guy has to be a genius. That guy has to be. I mean, you listen to those fucking lows. Holy shit. I mean, it's it's just, it's powerful. But just like Mr. Taleb disagreed with Aristotle, we're gonna have to push back on Mr. Kant. Mike says, should we even try to argue that conclusion? It is undeniable that the greatest human achievements leave most people spellbound. Listening to a recording of Kosi Fan Tutty, I feel pressed to concede that the causes of genius must always remain mysterious so i googled that it's a song by mozart composition i listened about 18 seconds of it bro it's actually horrible it's the worst thing i've ever heard but i'll cut him some slack he's classier than me whatever um we'll substitute maybe wild eyes by parkway drive or the price of agony by fit for a king um this just has to be it's a mystery it just has to be magic but regardless Many people, maybe including us, would dearly like to know more about the circumstances that create genius. They intrigue us. Their achievements touch our own lives. And maybe, just maybe, we might want to become rich, jack, and become a god among men or something like that. Uh, So there's no lack of reasons for making strenuous efforts to uncover the influences that have made certain individuals exceptionally creative or inventive. Confronted with the strength of opinion insisting on geniuses being a mystery, it is hardly surprising that many people have assumed that efforts to explain it must end in failure. But is that pessimism justified? It is certainly not helpful. Starting out with the belief that something is inherently mysterious creates extra barriers to understanding. How might progress be made? I begin by proposing that the disciplines of biography and psychology form the main two sources of evidence that can help us discover how and why geniuses arise and so he's just walking into the concept that what he's going to do in this book is and i'm not covering all the geniuses because you know he just wanted he covered a lot of them we're going to cover a couple we're going to go into some concepts but he goes hard and deep into um looking at specific geniuses and trying to figure out okay we got this story That they're touched by God like Superman, but when you start peeling back the layers, they're just Batman. They're just rich. And he talks about Mozart. Here are three facts about the young Mozart that appear to defy explanation. First, he began began to compose music when he was no more than four. Holy shit! I didn't even know what hands were then. Second, by the time he was six or seven, Mozart was such a brilliant performer on both harpsichord and violin that the young prodigy and his older sister were able to travel around europe demonstrating their talents on money-making tours i think when i was seven i actually was too scared to go to the toilet and i shit myself like a full colon at my friend's house so uh damn mozart third he had an amazing memory for music and it was reported that at 14 he wrote out the complete score of a lengthy multi-part musical composition all three of these feats are remarkable by any standards. They certainly appear to be quite mysterious. It's hard to see how they can be explained without appealing to magic or miracles. But can psychological research help to provide alternative explanations? Let's start by looking at the composing. So, he did compose music at a young age, but by the mis- by the standards of mature composers, I'm going to summarize Mike, but his early stuff sucked. He was fucking four and he just so happened that he had a a, a composer father who you know just just kind of like helped him out so uh yeah hmm. the earliest com- composition that's regarded as a masterwork number 9 K 271 whatever that that's a weird name man you got to work on your naming may I, may i suggest rain of blood or something like that. That'd be much better. Uh, he was not composed until he was 21. So by that time, Mozart had already been composing concertos for 10 years. So, you know, Mozart only started producing the distinctive music that we associate with him after a lengthy period of, a tra- of training. Yes, he was good as a kid. He was probably, you know, better than most. But that's what you get if your dad is a composer and if your sole aim in life is to compose music and you have no friends mike just touches on there's a study of 76 top composers and 73 of the 76 this guy discovered that no major work was produced prior to their 10th year of their composing career and as mike is is talking more about mozart i mean basically he's very good obviously um but he had no friends you know while i was shitting at my friends you know should shitting in my friend's living room mozart was practicing music with his adult father when i was going out and and i remember i threw a rock as hard as i could into a football because that seemed like a good idea came back up hit me in the eye when i was doing that mozart was still practicing with only his adult father and maybe sister when i kissed two french girls at the same time for my first kiss when i was in first grade yep yep going live saying it sorry mom uh mozart yep he was still practicing whatever the fuck that musical instrument, like damn harpsichord was. So it's amazing. But as we dig deeper, he has masked thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of practice while I was still crapping at my friend's house. And you know that the famous ten thousand hours rule is directionally true. And so, you know, Mike says cites the ten thousand hours rule. But saying that, you know, though Mozart had a weird distribution where he got very skilled very early, he still followed the mass up a shitload of hours of practice. So, Mozart came crashing down. He's he's not a not a genius. He's just a kid who practiced so much due to his composer father and he got extremely good. Now, uh go read the book for like a much better explanation about that cuz you know, I kind of hate all things classical music like why why do they wear the wigs, whatever. But um now this, you know, this isn't saying you need to spend 10,000 hours on something. You know, we know the 80-20 rule. Uh, we know how to learn things quicker and more efficiently than most people. But it's saying that if geniuses were real, well, goddammit, where are they? Because everybody, and he moves into talking about chess, everybody who's incredibly good at anything has had to practice a lot of hours close to 10,000. Last bit on Mozart. Uh, let's assume that Mozart's father made his son practice for an average of three hours a day from the age of three. In that event, by the time the child was six, when he and his sister were first taken around Europe on the musical tours in which they displayed their talents, Mozart would have already practiced for a total of 3,500 hours. That's one year before I shit my friend's living room and he's practiced 3,500 hours. That is roughly as much time as the typical young performer takes to reach the standard of a good amateur player. In Mozart's day, it was, as it still is, unusual for a young instrumentalist to have already practiced more than a thousand hours by the age of six. So if the young Mozart had experienced substantially more training and practice than that, this would largely account for his standard of performing being superior to anything his audiences have previously observed in a child of that age. And I don't know what I was really meaning by this note, but I'm going to throw it out here. I wrote down, uh, with enough structure, even monkeys can dance. Think about that. And we're going to get a lot deeper examples when we go into specific geniuses. But it's like, yes, he was a genius compared to normal kids. But that's what happens when you deprive a kid of everything except for musical practice. And Mozart apparently had a really good memory, but... Mike says he's actually just good at chunking and pattern recognition similar to grand masters in chess. So read the damn book. But we can now see that it is entirely possible that all three of Mozart's remarkable early feats could, after all, have been achieved through the operation of mental processes that were broadly the same as the ones that give rise to more modest skills and achievements of ordinary people. So it's possible that Mozart was just a guy who practiced a shitload and that is where we're fucking going. And speaking of where we're going, Mr. Howe says, I am convinced that it is indeed possible to understand genius and its causes. A major aim of the present book is to unearth the influences that have helped make a few rare individuals capable of remarkable feats of imagination and discovery. When that has been achieved, providing us with some understanding of the contributing factors, the absurdity of appealing to mystical forces will be evident. There is simply no need to believe that mysteries or miracles are involved. So as we're going through this whole shit, he's talking about, um, we must take pains to be sure that any explanations arrived at are ones that genuinely illuminate and extend our understanding rather than being pseudo explanations. It is important to be aware that clues about possible causes of genius that are encountered in common sense wisdom can actually impede understanding rather than adding to it. One widespread belief hinted at in Kant's suggestion that genius is a quality which nature endows in certain people is that the causes of individual's exceptional attainments take the form of special gifts or innate talents. Now, that claim is not necessarily false, of course. It is entirely conceivable that it, that geniuses are indeed born with special characteristics that partly account for their outstanding achievements and irrespective of whether the claim is true or false the fact that many adults are convinced that only those young people who are born possessing special gifts can thrive in fields of expertise such as music has monumentous practical implications for numerous children however for it to be legitimate to conclude that innate gifts really are an influence there would need to be independent evidence that they do actually exist in the absence of that evidence such a conclusion would be groundless What often happens, however, is that simply because someone is exceptionally able, in the absence of an obvious alternative, it is assumed that the person must have been born with a special gift or talent. So he's basically saying as we're going through this, we need to watch out for the narrative fallacy. We need to watch out for this, you know, man, that guy is so good at, you know, like if you've seen that that YouTube video of, I think his name is Salt Bay. That's a weird name and I loosely know of him, but he wears those those weird Harry Potter uh, glasses and he's really good at cutting meat, you see that guy and you're like, fuck, that dude has meat cutting in his jeans. But we have to be careful of that. And that also influences a lot of how uh, children are taught in school. You know, so imagine if Salt Bay started cutting the meat and and he was really bad at first in his little butcher apprenticeship. And, you know, the butcher was like, well, he doesn't have the gift. And then he kicks Salt Bay out, even though Salt Bay is the greatest meat cutter in the history of the world. But deciding whether or not there are solid grounds for believing that innate gifts and talents do actually exist, it's complex. And he's gonna talk about it. But you know, unless we actually can verify that that these innate talents and gifts exist. All that is achieved by invoking special magical qualities is to create the kind of pseudo explanation that attributes events to the presence of some other kind of magic ingredient. So like, yes, it's like it's basically what he's saying is, you know, you look at a flying squirrel and you're like, Jesus Christ, somebody built that bitch wings. That's a great potential explanation. But you have to be open if they actually just evolved wings. Same with genius. That person is so good at something, they they couldn't have just learned it, right? Now, he kind of touched on this. And, you know, sometimes people get all crazy about definitions. And so he's just using genius in the term that, like, when you think of the word genius in the English language, he's using that term. So, you know, he's not having some specific ridiculous definition of like, well, you know, they have to have at least five years of exemplary performance in this specific thing. It's just like when you think of genius in your mind, that's that's the definition that he's using. OK, great. And he's not, you know, and he brought up another thing that you know like, how do you figure out who, who's a genius? Because sometimes reputations, you know, wax and wane, you know, half the time. Sigmund Freud is like some, some genius psychologist and the other time he's, he's this coke addled momfucker. So um, we're just not even gonna worry about all of that. We're just gonna opt for the colloquial definition of genius. So what are geniuses like? What kinds of people are they? They are hugely diverse, but a few characteristics are shared by virtually all of them. The first is an intense curiosity and dedication to one's work. A second and perhaps more surprising trait Possessed by most geniuses is the capacity to acquire a variety of human qualities. So geniuses are usually sure about what they want to do, single-minded, committed, and they have a firm sense of direction. They often work with ferocity and intensity, even when impeded by doubts and frustrations. They also share a capacity for sustained diligence. Isaac Newton, he uh, basically, this bitch would concentrate so hard that he would like start to die. And his doctor would be like, bitch, you're actually going to kill yourself by studying. And so he would have to like go take breaks and stuff. Uh, but he displayed an impressive doggedness at persisting in the face of difficulties. Struggling to comprehend the mathematics in Descartes' geometry, Newton just kept on trying. He read it by himself when he was got over two or three pages. He could understand no farther than he began again and got three or four pages further till he came to another difficult place then he began again and advanced farther continuing doing so till he had made himself master of the whole so that that's what's happening here you know Newton's not just like eating apples god damn it he's studying that horrible book I mean I bet I would rather I would rather get maced than have to study Descartes geometry for six months and he's not you know he's not understanding it at first he pulls it up and he's like oh god Descartes bro write this better and then like he understands one page and then two pages and three pages and the curious thing is that that type of trait right there that sustained diligence seems to pop up more and more when you look at geniuses so says Mr. Howe rest in peace the second way in which geniuses are alike is in their ability to bring a number of different qualities to their enterprises so he's going to talk about Charles Darwin and it's pretty crazy but Just think of the example of Steve Jobs. Okay, prototypical genius guy, um, but he combined beautiful design and calligraphy with computers. Because before, you know, that's like telling me that when make let's make a let's make the elevator buttons beautiful, and everybody who makes elevators is like, shut up, bitch! Everybody just no one cares about that. And then Steve Jobs is like, but I think they do. And so then he made. His computer's beautiful, and I am preparing for this and using a Mac computer right now. So, oh shit, the picture is starting to form. And Mr. Howe's moving on, he says, it is important to avoid confusing experiences with environments. People are directly affected by their experiences, but only indirectly influenced by their environments. Surprise is sometimes expressed at the fact that two children brought up in the same family environment can turn out very differently, but there's nothing remarkable about that since the children may have experienced events in contrasting ways. The key distinction here is between events as seen from the outside and as perceived from the unique vantage point of the person concerned. So that is true. So so I'm going to use myself and my sister as an example. So we grew up, we moved around a lot. You know, My dad worked for Eli Lilly. So we lived in Korea. We lived in Belgium. Um, you know, he was very sophisticated. And uh, you know, we were used to being the new kids. So we were the new kid all the time. But she and I handled that totally different. So one story that encapsulates me and one story that encapsulates my sister. So um, again, dad worked for Eli Lilly, very sophisticated. And a lot of times he'd have friends over for dinner. And now these weren't just like humans. These were like sophisticated executive friends, And uh, you know his boss sometimes uh, named Cheeto, and then he had one named Dorito. I'm not even kidding. And I was a little stupid little child, and I was like, I want to see your boss named Frito. Um, But you know, I would always talk to them. I'd sit at the dinner table with them, and I would, I was like, I don't know. It was like a year after I'd crashed at my friend's house. um, I was maybe eight, or something like that, and just have a normal conversation. And I would, I would always hit them at the end with my killer joke. Close it up. I would say, if you're an American going into the bathroom and you're an American coming out of the bathroom, what are you when you're in the bathroom? And all the, you know, people, because sometimes, you know, we're in Korea. um, Sometimes the, you know, people wouldn't speak English that well, Like I don't know what. And I would say European, just like you're peeing, but I didn't even understand the joke. But anyways, so then I'd get like laughs and I'm like, yeah, whoa. And so, and I was used to being the new kid. So I would, you know, I'd always have to go make friends and I got really good at making friends really quick. And so that that's me. Same exact environment though, my sister. So super quiet, hates people, basically a robot. And you know, while I was sitting at the dinner table and eating all the food, my sister was super picky. And um, my mom is, is this very nice lady. And so one, one time she made some sort of vegetables and the rule was hey you got to try a bite and eventually that rule got amended that everybody except for my sister had to try a bite but um my sister cried like sat at the table and cried for four hours and my mom had, had been dealing with this and was like you know i'm gonna try she's gonna have to eat it for breakfast and so you know my sister sits there and cries until it's bedtime goes to bed wakes up in the morning and it begins again for breakfast and so she's like my sister puts it in her mouth and she just loudly gags and screams, it's so nasty. And and actually almost pukes on the table. <laughs> and my mom is like, her feelings are so hurt. And I'm totally not helping it. Because you know I would always sit there and be like, yeah, Carly, you need to listen better to mom and dad. They're so reasonable. Look how nice they are. They cook this food for you. And, and so horrible, brother. But um, totally the same environment but totally different experience of it. And so Mr. Howe is saying that you you can't just look at a genius's environment, you gotta realize how are they experiencing it. And that's what we're gonna do as we dig into these here geniuses. And before we jump into Charles Darwin, he closes up the intro and says, I establish for instance, that there is no firm scientific justification for the widely held belief that high abilities are made possible by certain individuals possessing innate gifts or talents. I also question some common views concerning the manner in which genetic variability exerts its effect on people. Mistaken beliefs about the origin of exceptional capabilities are pernicious, meaning they stick around a lot, and can lead to faulty decisions being made with damaging consequences to immense numbers of young people. And that is exactly right. Like, what if Mr. Howe's right? You've got that A-plus player at work who's the biggest baller and closes all the sales and you deal with his fucking horrible attitude and he's a cancer to the team but he makes the most sales. Well, he's just just, just a genius. Like we can't fire him. Like what are we going to do? Nope. Actually, just fucking fire him and train someone else to be an A player who isn't an asshole. Another example, let's say you start out and you're doing something and you're horrible. Great. You are almost a genius. Or in high school even you know, let's say there's that there's that 14-year-old kid who already has tattoos, lip piercings, you know, gets Ds at school, and he just bit he bit the school bully in the face. Should we just write him off like call oh, that guy's a lost cause? I mean maybe. I mean there's some people that could seriously be lost causes, but they wouldn't be lost causes from lack of ability. So now, let's move into Charles Darwin. We enjoy being told about those geniuses who amaze us with feats that are especially spellbinding. Without them, it would be harder for people to cling to the belief that geniuses are a special breed, akin to the magicians and dragons and fabulous giants that populate the mythologies of past generations. So we prefer geniuses to be sharply different from ordinary people, and preferably a little uh, eccentric. Einstein makes an ideal genius. It is frustratingly hard to understand his discoveries, let alone imagine a more conventional person emulating them. Mozart too has a special mystique fueled by most people's inability to even imagine why the fuck anyone would like classical music. Darwin is different. Nobody doubts his theory's monumental power or disputes its immense influence but the principle of natural selection has the disturbing quality of being easy to understand. For some critics of Darwin, the discovery of natural selection has too much of the air of an accidental encounter with something that has been waiting to be found. Detractors have found additional excuses for withholding admiration from Darwin. Some have, some have suggested that since artificial selection of domestic animals had been established for, for years, uh, only a small mental leap may have been needed to be made to arrive at the principle of natural selection. Blah, 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 some other people hate Darwin. Uh, Yet, even if it were true that the theory of evolution did not involve such a vast creative leap as some other scientific discoveries, the sheer immensity of Charles Darwin's achievement would be big enough to justify our hailing him as a great scientist. Of all the big ideas in science, natural selection is probably the most monumentous. It compels us to see the world differently. It explains how complex life arrived. The principle of natural selection has established that it is entirely possible for the human species to have evolved without supervision by an all-knowing deity. A number of complications made the feat of forging the theory of evolution a far more difficult accomplishment than Darwin's critics have appreciated. For a start, everybody was a super-creationist back then. Um... You know, and they were like real ingenious about it. Um, a second obstacle Darwin faced was that in his time, there were harsh and active opposition for evolutionary ideas. So, you know, in his time, what was, what was more likely? Let's think about this. What, like, let's actually think. What what was more likely? That people get a little crazy and they, they actually burn somebody alive for thinking bad thoughts? Or someone sets down and, and has a very organized scientific study using the scientific method obviously we know this bitch was risking being burned as a witch but another barrier to the creation of an adequate explanation of evolution remained and mastering this further obstacle would take far more than courage alone only a thinker with quite extraordinary mental resources would be capable of overcoming it. The problem Darwin faced was that he was at the same time having to describe the evolutionary changes that had taken place and also provide an explanation for them. Rather than simply having to explain known facts, it was also necessary to simultaneously create the damn boat as you're fucking boating. That's right. But Darwin succeeded. Shout out to my friend whose wife is having a human child right now. I can't believe we're all adults. What the fuck? And then Mr. Howe just... prattles on with a bunch more bullshit about how darwin's actually a badass and um again i I don't know what mental state i was in as i was taking these these notes but um i just have a note that says uh big dick boy darwin so that's right carry on now if we're thinking about the typical genius there may be no such animal as the typical genius but most can be placed reasonably comfortably within one or other of a number of categories on the basis of shared attributes darwin can't most geniuses were remarked upon as being precocious while still children so that means like smart as hell darwin was not many geniuses had to struggle in order to make a living darwin did not When we begin to investigate the events of Darwin's life that enabled him to become capable of his great work, it quickly becomes evident that his early circumstances were not at all like those of certain other geniuses. Charles Darwin was rich as hell. Because he was born to wealth, it was possible for Darwin to add to his capabilities during the course of his early life in a manner that was measured and unhurried, even stately. A wealthy young person had the luxury of being able to afford to waste time, make bad decisions and vacillate before before eventually getting started on a course of action that would lead in a meaningful direction so as we're beginning to dive in to to darwin you know he's not he's not that kid that grew up in the you know damn damn trenches you know had to fight for fight for snacks he he you know he, he had some silver spoons in his mouth he didn't give a fuck he just was like chilling hanging out Wee, look at me i'm darwin and then all of a sudden he became a genius what the hell teach me more mr howe ah but here it is in darwin's case plotting the route of his movement forward reveals a lengthy very gradual but steadily rising course we see a child who appears to be remarkably ordinary lacking any obvious talent or special gift slowly extending his capabilities little by little eventually a point is reached at which it becomes evident that without anyone noticing this very ordinary boy become an extraordinarily able young scientist exceptionally well positioned to take advantage of any opportunity that presents itself so that's the thing with darwin you guys read the book for a lot deeper details but he's kind of just plods along and then all of a sudden by the age of 20 he's all of a sudden everybody looks around like well hey little charles i thought you were collecting snails he's like i'm a damn scientist now something like that in addition it's not all just brains here. Like most creative people, Darwin drew heavily on qualities of temperament and personality as well as his, as his intellectual powers. But the attributes Darwin needed most were very different from those which some other geniuses have depended upon. The life which young Darwin enjoyed within his wealthy family gave him many experiences and opportunities that helped to prepare for his eventual career without enormous strain. There, were, there was no necessity the herculean efforts that some other scientists of the time such as some guy named humphrey uh had to do compared to the intense childhood regime of someone like mozart the circumstances that brought about darwin's increasing competence were less formal and deliberate and less competitive yet there were similarities in common with all individuals who have achieved exceptionally high levels of expertise darwin was able to devote many hours of concentrated attention To the field in which he eventually excelled and and one of the things that becomes real important uh, later because you've got to think like darwin's out there peddling witches theories that everybody wants to kill him for so he's got to be really good at sales and interacting with people and so his mom died and he had to go to some boarding school and he got really good at interacting with the other kids um and so but darwin did not shine at shrewsbury school his schoolwork was never more than average. He later became highly skilled at shooting, <laughs> but at school, he never made an impression at any sport. Why play sports when you can shoot guns? He was certainly not disliked. School fellows recalled him as kindly, friendly, gentle, popular, and they were intrigued by his knowledge of natural history. But his formal school achievements were not in the least distinguished. So he's that guy that everybody likes, that you know, gets Bs, C pluses... You know, he probably brings guns to school. I don't know. But, um, you know, no sign yet that he's going he's gonna to change history forever. And um, part of this was because Darwin just thought school was the stupidest thing that has ever lived. Um, yeah, But despite the fact that Darwin's education as a scientist was largely unconnected to his schooling, it started at roughly the same time. Although in the initial years, it would never have occurred to him to apply the term science to the collecting activities that his scientific training began with. So he just like was going to school, hated it, and he just spent all of his spare time collecting stuff. But as the passion and the knowledge grew, you know, what started as a child's hobby um, all of a sudden turns into he's doing science now. But there was no abrupt leap from indiscriminate collector to informed naturalist or from a strictly amateur naturalist to a serious scientific biologist the butterflies and beetles that fascinated him at 10 still fascinated him at 20 albeit for different reasons he had gradually become something of an amateur expert but without ever having to make a sudden commitment to studying natural history as an academic subject his activities as a naturalist in training sometimes involved fatigue and hardship and yet his his efforts would always have been directly fueled by his own purposes and interests so you know he's like that he's like that kid just coding apps to make his xbox do crazy shit like you know he's going to just troll his friends so he spends 40 hours creating apps that kind of like loosely mess up his friends aim in in call of duty which is probably impossible but um and then all of a sudden he wakes up he's 18 and he's like whoa i'm like a world-class developer hey that's funny um that's what darwin is but at the same time he's developing all these personality traits so he's not too shy he's a good companion he gets on well with other people and that enables him to take advantage of openings that would not have been on offer to someone less personable you know darwin wasn't a charmer men were not dazzled by his conversation and women did not swoon in his company taking off their clothes immediately but people did seem to enjoy being with him adults found him likable and that was partly because he was sensitive to other people's needs and he listened to them that's how nice mr darwin but you know as i was reading this like that is such a good example of we've talked about it a couple different times in a couple different ways but uh, the talent stack concept by Scott Adams or Naval talks about it but you know it's, it's like what is your Venn diagram of skills it's not what is your specific skill and sometimes it is like if you're, if you're an engineer maybe it is but if you're a scientist you know let's say that Darwin was just like so insanely obsessed with bugs and you know he was the world's best expert on bugs but when anyone would talk to him you know he, he was only able to act like a bug you know, nobody would give him any money to do any damn research but he was a he was a just an active chap a good guy and so he combined you know this deep expertise with being able to talk to people but even at even at 16 you know darwin at the age of 16 was not so unpromising as he appeared to his headmaster, and there were signs of future strengths that seemed to have been unnoticed at the time he was a decidedly enthusiastic young naturalist and within that field of interest he was unusually knowledgeable for his age. He had also acquired a keen interest in science and was eager to learn more. But if there's any truth at all to the view that Charles Darwin possessed some kind of inborn talent, it certainly was not evident at this point in life. Darwin had been given plenty of opportunities, and on the whole, he had used them well. He had been encouraged by his father's, his sister, his father, his sisters, and his brother His family background was amply supplied with two crucial ingredients that help nourish a young person's growing mental powers, intellectual stimulation, and equally importantly, the presence of support and structure that can be provided by other members of the family. So just reinforcing, it's like, okay, well, you know, like the world's best genius uh, when you're looking at him throughout the whole of his life until he became a genius was just like a dude interesting okay it's starting to unravel Mr. Howe I'm seeing it and Mr. Howe brings up uh, Michaela Csikszentmihalyi who wrote the book Flow and we've kind of butchered his name multiple times on the podcast I think my favorite is when I called him Michael Chicken Sack Um, so we're going to skip that part but basically just reinforcing the concept that deep practice that you know that practice just like we saw Newton trying to learn Descartes damn book that's deep practice doing that, that is the most correlated thing with success. And Michael Chickensack does like this whole study and he found that, that that young people who really like studying or like at least maybe don't like it, but they can see the value of it and do it. Uh, they're a lot more likely to be successful. Okay. Thank you, Michael. And so Darwin, you know, he's still just kind of bumbling around collecting bugs and shit, and, but getting better and better and better, you know, like that guy that that buys a cast iron pan at the garage sale and then gets on reddit and then buys cast iron pan books and then like knows all about cast iron pans he's getting better and better and drops out of med school goes and does some other school like his dad just thinks he's a horrible failure but all the time the constant in his life is his just deep pursuit of naturalism and then finally he meets a fellow crazy person he meets robert grant and you know so darwin's out there just you know just fucking collecting bugs and shit for hours and hours and hours a day and uh it says this vigorous activity coincided with his getting to know the prominent zoologist robert grant an expert on sponges who became one of the most influential of darwin's teachers grant was a happy choice as darwin's first real scientific mentor because as well as being an excellent scientist whose own research quickly engaged darwin's interest He was a man whose broader views about the origin of living things were as unusual in being strongly inclined towards evolution. By guiding Darwin's activities and directing them towards realistic scientific goals, Grant helped to ensure that the energy of the young enthusiast was not wasted. At the same time, Grant, whose own dedication to the practical task of finding specimens was unsparing, gave Darwin an excellent brief apprenticeship in practical science. In his search for tiny, almost invisible sea slugs, Grant would spend up to 10 hours a day wading through bitterly cold waters. Darwin was impressed by this example as he walked and talked with Grant and watched him at work and learned rapidly from him and began making original observations himself. On March 27th, the just 18 year old Charles Darwin made the first presentation of his own discoveries at a meeting of some scientific society so now we see a little bit more direction now we see you know he's just been collecting bugs and then he just he finds this grizzled old scientist who's like hey pussy if you were actually a man and a worthy collector you'd walk in the fucking cold for 10 hours a day you see these toes me neither i lost them trying to find sponges step it up so Darwin's like, oh shit, okay, I see, I see how this, I see how this has to be, and he makes it to another level. And Mister Howe just gives more and more damn examples about Darwin, blah 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 blah. But one thing that's kind of cool and uh, hilarious is, so Darwin's, you know, writing his cousin about birds and beetles and shit, because that's like normal Darwin stuff. But um, in his second year at Edinburgh, he was constantly going on long walks and expeditions, searching for new and rare specimens. He was furious to discover that a supplier whom he was paying to provide beetles was letting another collector have first pick and reported to his cousin, accordingly, we have made our final adeus, which means like goodbye in French, I think. Um, My part in the affecting scene consisted in telling him that he was a... It's bleeped out. I think Darwin censored himself, but it's D, dash, 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 D. -d 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 I'm thinking he was a damned rascal and signifying I should kick him down the stairs if he ever appeared in my room again. Holy shit. You know, you're just so passionate about collecting beetles when that if you see them again, that you will kick them down the stairs. You know, not just kick them, kick them down the fucking stairs. Like that's, he's trying to break backs and we can see this passion growing. And then all of a sudden, right after he was you know, kind of done taking long walks with the toeless man, he um, got an offer. In the summer of 1831, some guy named Henslow saw Darwin in precisely that light. And he's talking about like seeing him in the light, like he's, he's this good scientist now. He's not just some bumbling ass kid. Um, had he not done so, he would never have singled him out as the person who was most fitting to be given the matchless opportunity for a naturalist that was being made available by the voyage of the HMS Beagle. And if you remember... Uh, the hms beagle is the voyage that he takes where he discovers all the finches and it's like five years and he you know he basically takes this voyage he comes back and he's changed the world all the same if darwin had not had the opportunity to take part in a lengthy expedition it is unlikely that he would have developed into the great theorist he became as well as exposing him to an immense, immense variety of unfamiliar phenomenon that would have sparked new thoughts and new insights in a mind as well prepared as his the voyage gave him the leisure and the intellectual privacy to contemplate freely and at length and it it just talks about how you know it's this fucking five-year voyage and so as as time is passing i mean he's really coming to his own and then all of a sudden you know he comes back from this voyage and he's a genius holy shit he changes the world it's a genius but we can see how You know he's just kind of ambling around he's got this passion this whole time of bugs and and natural shit and everything clearly i know a lot about that and then each little stair step each little stair step each little stair step then all of a sudden boom he's a genius it would be an exaggeration to say that by the time he was 22 and joined the beagle his career was assured but he had undoubtedly prepared himself admirably well in the course of his outwardly unexceptional childhood and adolescence Within two years of his return to England in 1836, he had worked out the essential details of the theory that was to make him famous. Nobody could have predicted at the time that he or any other young scientist would achieve that. Even so, had detailed information been made available at that time concerning the progress until then of Charles Darwin and the score or so of most promising naturalists among his contemporaries, it is not at all unlikely that he would, he would have been picked as one of the most likely to become a major scientist. But that is not to say that anyone could have predicted then that Charles Darwin would become known as the great scientist who produced the theory of evolution by natural selection. His succeeding at that achievement still seems remarkable. But the fact that something is remarkable, like Santa, does not justify our insisting that it simply could not happen in the absence of mysteries or miracles or that it requires the intervention of special genes or innate gifts that create a distinct breed of geniuses. And there are no compelling reasons to suggest that the kinds of reasons that very adequately explain Darwin's progress until the age of 22 or so cannot also account for his later achievements. So holy shit. So what started as just this, this obvious genius who found out natural selection, when we unpack it, no step along the way was unexplainable just through natural, normal human learning. How then is the whole unexplainable? Mic drop, Mr. How, onto Genius 2, George Stevenson. The long ascent of George Stevenson. For the longest time, uh, people would never go further than a horse's journey away from home. You know, if if one wanted to travel across the country, one needed to harden up their inner thighs to be an athlete or to be rich. And then all of a sudden, these mechanical horses arrived. Trains. In addition to being a very easy way to commit suicide or escape from a bank robbery, trains allowed people to travel long distances in a comparatively short period of time. Enter George Stevenson. These revolutionary changes were made possible by the efforts of a self-trained colliery worker, George Stevenson, who in sharp contrast to Darwin, was born in poverty and never had a single day's schooling. Because of Stevenson, Britain was the first country in the world to have passenger railways. The Victorians called him the father of railways. George Stevenson was quite an astounding individual, a genuinely heroic figure who achieved eminence against all odds through extraordinary determination and willpower and we're gonna see this bitch is a savage stevenson was a great engineer and inventor he did not invent locomotives and nor was he the first engineer to use metal rails even so the railway revolution and the immense changes it brought would have been much delayed had it not been for his inventive genius and his gritty capacity to persevere in the face of ridicule and hostility. George Stevenson was the butt of many insults from well-bred individuals who were convinced that nothing of merit could be created by an ignorant working man from the remote east of England. The odds were stacked against him. Everybody hated him. Uh, I tried to find insults about him, but I couldn't find any. Um, I just found a quote from him, and it says he had this like real insane accent, so I'm not gonna try it, but uh, he says... I was threatened to be ducked in the pond if I proceeded. And he's talking about like railway construction. And of course, we had a great deal of the survey to take by stealth at the time when the persons were at dinner. We would would not get it by night, for we were watched day and night, and guns were discharged over the ground belonging to Captain Bradshaw to prevent us. I can state further, I was twice turned off the ground myself by his men. And they said, if I did not go instantly they would carry me off. Holy shit! You can see he's re- he's ready to die for his trains. And I looked up a couple. I looked up a couple facts about George Stevenson. Um, just super crazy guy. Uh, so he invented a safety lamp because miners used to have an open flame. But like you know, you go in a damn mine and there's an open flame, and you know you catch the earth's farts on fire and you burn everybody to death. So he developed a safety lamp. That he demonstrated by holding it next to a fissure emitting flammable gas and everyone's like no george no and he's like shut up and then he did it and they're like okay i'd love i'd like one of those um he spoke a northumberland accent which was considered lowly which i don't know i think it sounds like oh we lost the revolutionary war something like that i don't know um he secretly met his first wife in an orchard he was a keen gardener throughout his life and um actually developed a not too friendly rivalry with joseph paxton head gardener at uh, some other house twice beating the master oh my god and um going to the book the earliest years of george stevenson's life were unremarkable he played around the village and looked for birds nests and that was because he you know he didn't have anything going on and i'll tell you you know when when there's when you're bored and a kid and there's nothing going on you can definitely come up with some crazy shit to do um of my favorites back in the day we we would do slap boxing so it's just like regular boxing but without punching you slap each other and uh super fun there's another game uh, called mercy where you squeeze each other's hands as hard as you can and the first person to to be in too much pain and submit they lose um there was even this one time when about 10 of us uh, we farted in a in a bottle for like eight hours and then uh, we went up to strangers at Black Boat Camp and we we're like, hey, hey man, smell this. And then they would smell it and, and we'd be like, hey, gotcha. Um, so you know, with all that context, like birds nests are very reasonable. But George, his family had no in- influential relatives or friends. There was never any hint of a wealthy patron to lend him a helping hand. So how was it possible for George to become a genius and a great engineer despite all these handicaps and with no obvious advantages? How did he do it? On the face of things, accounting for Stevenson's accomplishments seems actually impossible. Yet, a careful examination of the young Stevenson's actual circumstances does reveal a few clues, providing the beginnings of an explanation. So, this is a good example because, you know, he was a genius. Like, that just so easily explains all of it that that's where everybody wants to go. But what if that's not right? You know, it's so easy just to say like, well, the reason that he's sick is he's got bad blood. We just need to cut his arm. But we all now know that that is a dumb idea. That That's not how it works. George Stevenson's early experiences were far from being ones that would normally be associated with the acquisition of exceptional expertise. They did nevertheless give him some uncommon chances to gain some of the special capabilities That would have helped a young person to become an engineer during the years when he was edging towards adulthood a perceptive worker like stevenson might have perceived that steam locomotion was starting to become a practical possibility as he added to his practical skills he would have become aware that he had already possessed some of the knowledge and some of the capabilities that could help him make that possibility into reality having having established that george stevenson's distinctly unpromising beginnings did contain a few elements that an energetic and resourceful young man just might have succeeded in turning into opportunities, we can now edge further towards providing an explanation for Stevenson's accomplishments. Extraordinary as these were, once his actual progress has been examined, we can see that there's no compelling reason to believe that their origins were either mysterious or miraculous. Exceptional capabilities are not created from occasional dramatic happenings. In reality, they build up gradually, largely as a consequence of the steady repetition of unexciting daily routines and activities. Psychological research into expertise has underlined the wisdom of smiles insights, some guy, confirming that individual capabilities are largely gained through lengthy exposure to the ordinary and routine background events repeated day after day that make up the bulk of a person's life, rather than by occasional foreground incidents that sees attention because of their dramatic and sensational nature so it looks so success looks a lot more like just fucking getting up every day and coding for six hours a day and trying your best than you know getting struck by lightning and um there's some there's some childhood stories of of george that is um showing he's resourceful like Uh, so when he was not hunting for bird's nests, there was there was one story of him spending a whole day looking after horses in the local market to earn a shilling so that his sister could buy a new bonnet and another report of him getting a job minding cows at two pence per day so you know we're seeing that this kid is basically just energetic but has absolutely nothing but that work ethic stevenson's activities as he approached adulthood provide firm evidence of a willingness to work hard and throw himself into the kinds of pursuits that would have extended his capabilities enough for him to have aimed at becoming more than an unskilled pit worker so steven his earliest ambition was to become an engine man responsible for the daily operation of a steam engine And he made his first big step in that direction at the age of 14 when he was appointed as an assistant fireman to be paid one shilling, so one twentieth of a pound per day. That job did not last long um, because the pit closed down, but by 15, he was a full fireman, although it was another two years before his income reached 12 shillings a week and he was making a man's wage. After a further move, he became the plug man or engine man that he had aspired to be, employed to keep a pump engine working and remedy minor defects. This was a relatively skilled job, especially for someone of his age. It needed more knowledge than was required to be a fireman. And it also paid better. So, you know, you can see... It's like that salesperson who gets that introductory shitty fucking job and just claws his way to the next shitty fucking job and then claws his way to the next job that's like kind of good. And all of a sudden he's like the VP of sales. Um, So by this time, George Stevenson was not only displaying an intense interest in engines, but also gaining a degree of expertise. This is the point in Stevenson's life when we see the first glimmer of a possibility that the young man might eventually become a proper engineer and perhaps an innovative one despite his lack of formal education as well as closely observing the engines he worked on he extended in more sophisticated ways his childhood pastime of building models and engines so despite being unable to read george stevenson would sometimes conduct small experiments to test his own ideas so you know he's and there's a, there's another part of the story that i uh, i skip but he he's studying these engines He's doing experiments. He's even taking the engines apart and putting them back together in his free time. Like, all this motherfucker cares about, because all he has, because he has nothing, all he has is engines. And there were numerous setbacks and hardships along the way, and plenty of barricades to overcome. For a start, at 18, Stevenson was still illiterate, although he had heard about the important new developments to steam engines he couldn't read and and so like that's insane to imagine because you know we're we're in this day and age with the internet and and we can educate ourselves you know you can listen to this podcast you can buy the book you can study anything you want but imagine you know what do you do do you go find a go find like a 14 year old kid and be like hey kid can you teach me how to read um really tough problem so uh, it says, illiteracy was a serious obstacle. Stevenson's growing interest in entrance was making him increasingly aware of how much he needed the knowledge that his lack of education had denied him. So at an age when many young people today would already be at university, Stevenson set out to give himself the beginnings of an elementary education. He learned to read and write by attending lessons, traveling three nights each week to a neighboring village after his long working day had ended. Soon afterwards, he started to learn arithmetic as well. Stevenson was immensely determined, as well as being strongly motivated to gain these skills. A contemporary who began at the same time recalled to Smiles, so I think some biographer, uh, that Stevenson quickly moved ahead of him and took took the figures so wonderfully, probably because he attacked these studies with such enthusiasm. And uh, this biographer says, George's secret was his perseverance. He worked out the sums in his by hours improving every minute of his spare time by the engine fire there studying the arithmetic problems set him upon a slate by the master in the evenings he took to robertson the sums which he had worked and the new ones were set for him to study out the following day thus his progress was rapid at around this time stevenson also extended his practical qualifications learning the difficult skill of breaking b-r-a-k-i-n-g the engine that transported miners and coal wagons to and from the surface. That job required a combination of steadiness, alertness, and precision. Any air could easily damage everything. So he worked late into the night at improving his reading, writing, and arithmetic. So if we're taking a step back, a picture's starting to develop. Like, this guy is a fanatic. Every single bit of his entire life, he's eating, he's sleeping, he's just breathing trains, engines, and anything that he can do to set himself up better to succeed in the railroad business. I mean, imagine you're working, you know, I bet I bet he was the dirtiest person at that, you know, you go to like night school, everybody's wearing regular clothes. He comes in and you you, know, you can't even tell his ethnicity because he's just like just gray, and it's like, what's going on? He's like, I've been in the mines for days, and he just... But that is the level of dedication that this dude had. So the picture is starting to uh, show itself, and there's also this like insane humility because you have to imagine he's like 20. You have to think about the embarrassment, and the humiliation, and the pain, and the spiritual torment that he would have to go through. But he's like, listen, I cannot crush everyone in the whole world in the railroad business if I don't know how to read. So I guess daddy be learning how to read. And there's a couple more stories that we're not going to cover. But, uh, you know, one of them, he there's a factory that got shut down, whatever. He got a new job. It was a little bit less responsibility, but he rewired the whole everything. That's such a great explanation uh, with the ropes <laughs> really helping out and uh, made it way better. And then there's another mine that was underwater and nobody thought that they could get this they could get the engine to pump out the water and it was like impossible and he's like well give me a chance chap and they're like okay dude whatever we got nothing to lose you're like the cop with the fucked up face here's your mold juice and in three days he rebuilt the whole thing and made the mine work and after he did that and this is worded very well um mr howe says this was the big break for which stevenson had prepared himself for and dodds made good his promise to make him a man for life so basically you know when stevenson was like hey bitch i can fix this engine i think that the the person who ran the business was like oh, okay dude if you can fix the engine i will take care of you for life and then he did he fixed it but the the thing i really like about how that's worded is that is the big break for which stevenson had prepared himself okay it's not like woo magic yay fiddle around it's like this dude had been on the path and then finally an exit showed up and he he just went straight to hell in a good way and as you can also think you know after he's developed all these skills he is he is actually one of the most qualified people in the whole country to work on steam engines on locomotives because you know there's like horse drawing engines and like some kind of bullshit engines, but, but everything sucked basically. And he just made himself into just on the frontier. And so by the time he was, you know, 27, 28, by this time in his life, Stevenson had finally succeeded in becoming prepared to make a real contribution to the improvement of steam locomotion. And again, that is the right way to word it. It had taken Stevenson a long time to reach the point of being ready to make a major impact as an inventor. Even the most basic skills of literacy and numeracy were only acquired by him when he was already an adult. And yet, even that handicap did not stop him eventually becoming an engineering genius. Looking back at George Stevenson's life prior to 1813 and asking how and why he managed to reach the point at which he finally was in a position to establish a reputation as an innovative engineer, we can now be sure But there were no miracles. There was nothing totally inexplicable about George Stevenson's progress. All there was was big dicks and hard work. Um, So although George Stevenson's lack of formal education did not prevent him from becoming a great engineer, when the word genius is linked to his name, it is sometimes preceded. And as 2 Chains would say, I took a nap in the pulpit. I never liked how a suit fit. I got a pocket full of money. It got me walking all slew foot and that closes george stevenson damn son what a good example you know that is that is the opposite of darwin but that is impressive and uh what a man what a man we're gonna skip the next chapter which covered michael faraday um he's basically some electricity scientist all sum up this all sum of the thesis which is like he taught himself everything from books and was not a genius there you go you don't have to read that chapter um Next, Einstein and the Prodigies. But if you want to learn about Einstein and the Prodigies and then how we close this shit out, what we can take from these geniuses, how we can apply it to our lives so we have a, a code of scalps dragging for fucking miles, you're going to have to tune in on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties. is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out a curiously disagreeable.com the troy hollings on instagram or wherever the fuck you get your podcast the end